0: Welcome to Deep Hollows and Dark Hearts, a podcast set in rural West Virginia about the things that we may not always understand. I'm your host, John Adkins. Let's get down to
1: it. Deep hollows and dark hearts, empty valleys full of bidden arms. Hollers and dark hearts bring us together And tear us apart
0: Welcome back to the show, everyone, and happy holidays, no matter what you celebrate. We'd like to thank you for listening, and if this is your first time here with us, welcome to our Dark Slice of Down Home. If you like the show and would like to help us grow, give us a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts, and be sure to tell everyone you know about us. We would greatly appreciate it. And now, let's get on with our show. The holiday season can be a romantic time, with the gifts and the cards and all the heartfelt sentiment in the air. Some traditions have stood the test of time to help promote these passionate feelings such as kissing under the mistletoe, while some folks create their own holiday traditions with the ones they love. There's a nip in the air, and the days are getting shorter, so for many, it's the perfect time to grab their person and cuddle up close next to the fire. Of course, the winter brings out more than just those warm and fuzzy feelings, and certain things that go bump in the night thrive when old man Winter rears his head. This is Blood in the Snow.
1: Alan Wheeler and Lisa Beck had been high school sweethearts. They had known each other since kindergarten, where a snot-nosed Alan with a monster truck shirt introduced himself to little Lisa with the frilly dress by pulling her pigtails and calling her Lisa the Loser. Lisa hated Alan after that, and when she would see him on the playground, she would glare at him in his poo-colored eyes. Alan, in return, would stick out his tongue and make faces at her, resulting in Lisa folding her arms and stomping away in a huff. In the fourth grade, their teacher, Miss Hunt, paired them together for their science fair project. Lisa, studious and overachieving spent days researching photosynthesis and growing plants in different environments. Meanwhile, Alan threw together the display board the night before, haphazardly stapling magazine cutouts of potted plants to poster board and misspelling the word photosynthesis in bold letters scrawled in a half-dried magic marker. They received a B- on the project, and Lisa's hatred for Alan grew. In high school, Allen joined the varsity football team, and Lisa was cheer captain, and, despite their years of rivalry, were voted homecoming king and queen during their senior year. As per their school's tradition, the two shared a dance at the homecoming formal, and Lisa was surprised to find that not only was she not repulsed at Allen, but his touch was gentle and light. She found herself staring into his brown eyes, as she had once called poo-colored, and worse, that she'd now found to be more like pools of chocolate she could fall into. Alan smiled at her, letting a small chuckle escape his lips.
2: What's so funny?
3: Who would have thought after all these years of feuding, it would be the two of us here tonight?
2: Certainly not me.
3: Why have we always fought? What made you hate me all these years?
2: Um, hate is a strong word. I don't know if it's the one I would use, but the reason we have never gotten along, Alan Wheeler, is because you came up and pulled my hair on the first day of kindergarten.
3: <laughs> <laughs> is that it? That's why you've dislocked me all these years?
2: Yes, because you were a mean kid with a runny nose who went around pulling people's hair and calling them names like Lisa the Loser.
3: Wow. That's it, huh? Do you know why I did that?
2: Um, Because you were a jerk.
3: That's because I liked you. And I was a five-year-old kid who didn't know how to express myself. Did you know that I had another name for you in my head? One that I couldn't say out loud?
2: Yeah, I had a few names for you I couldn't say out loud, too.
3: Was Lisa the Lovely? Uh,
2: I don't know what to say.
3: Say you'll go out with me tomorrow night, and we can start over. Clean slate.
1: Lisa smiled and agreed. Alan picked her up in his dad's pickup truck with a dozen roses. They went to dinner at the local Italian place and went for a walk down the boulevard overlooking the river. It turned out they had a lot in common, and stayed out later than curfew just looking up at the stars in the bed of the truck. Everything Lisa thought she knew about Alan was cast aside that night, as she learned about the young man she would grow to love. The night turned into a week, the week into a month, and before they knew it, high school was over, but their relationship was still going strong. The two got into the same college, and during the winter break of their freshman year at Marshall University, they decided to rent a remote cabin in the Monongahela Forest, just the two of them. It became a yearly tradition, and on their trip during their senior year, Alan got down on one knee by the fireplace and asked Lisa to marry him. Once again, she accepted, and they married that summer after graduation. The next several years were good to Alan and Lisa, as they built their careers and their future together. During their 10th year of marriage, Alan, who ran a successful real estate business, took Lisa out to dinner a week before their yearly cabin trip.
3: I have a surprise for you.
2: What is it?
3: Close your eyes. You can open them now. What is it? That is the deed to our very own cabin. It came on the market last month, and I snatched it up as soon as I laid eyes on it. It's beautiful, it's perfect, and only about 15 miles from the one we ran every year.
2: Do you have any pictures? Took a ton. Oh, wow, that's really beautiful.
3: And it's ready for our trip next weekend, too.
2: Oh my God, look at that hot tub on the deck, I love it.
3: Just wait until you see the place in person.
2: It says here they're calling for a lot of snow this weekend.
3: Well, it's December, honey. It's snowed almost every year we've come up here, and we've been fine. It's nothing this old truck can't handle.
2: Okay, but what if we can't make it back home on Monday?
3: Then we hunker down by the fire and enjoy a couple personal days And each other's company. Yeah, but what about... Lisa, baby, it's going to be all right. Try not to worry. We will be just fine. I promise.
2: It's even more beautiful in person.
3: just wait until you see the inside. It's so cold. I'll get a fire started. There's a small stack of firewood just outside the back door. Why don't you go ahead and put the groceries away while I do that?
1: The happy couple settled in and before long the fire had the small cabin feeling warm and toasty. They settled in on a small love seat that faced the fireplace, Lisa laying her head on Alan's broad chest as he ran his fingers through her long hair. They sat there, content, listening to the crackling of the fire and enjoying each other's company for at least an hour. Lisa?
2: Yeah?
3: Are you ready for bed? No. Honey, you've been dozing off and on for at least half an hour.
2: I'm okay. Come
3: Come on, let's go. Besides, I have something for you. What is it?
1: Alan walked over to his coat, hanging by the front door, and returned with a small, rectangular box. Lisa opened it, and inside was a simple silver chain with a small, brilliant sapphire. Lisa's birthstone affixed to it. Lisa began to tear up.
2: Thank you so much, Alan.
1: She kissed him, passionately, and they retired to the bedroom. Alan awoke to the sound of a loud crashing, clattering commotion. It was early, still dark out. He looked to the digital clock on his nightstand,
3: but its display was blank.
1: He tried to turn on the lamp, but nothing happened.
2: What's going on?
3: I don't know. The power's out. I'm going to go check it out. Alan threw on a robe and slipped on his boots without lacing them.
1: He opened the front door to a blanket of snow. Easily nine inches deep, blanketing everything in sight. And there, in the driveway, sat his truck, the cab crushed by a fallen tree.
3: Well, the insurance appraiser is out for the weekend, so they can't send anyone out until Monday at the earliest. As for the rental, They can't even provide an estimate. Apparently the snowstorm turned into a freak blizzard, and it took everyone by surprise. They don't think they'll be able to get the roads cleared out in this area until Wednesday at least. Maybe longer if it keeps snowing like this.
2: How much is out there now?
3: Eh, I'm afraid to check. We had 18 inches an hour and a half ago, and it hasn't stopped snowing since.
2: So what are we going to do?
3: We bought enough food to last the weekend. We just need to ration it out. Make it last a few days longer. It shouldn't be too bad, but we have a decent stockpile of firewood, so we should be able to keep the fire going, if nothing else. We will be fine. It's just a little hiccup. We can still have our little romantic getaway.
2: I should have breakfast done in just a few minutes. What should we do with the rest of the stuff in the fridge?
3: Well, we probably won't have power all weekend. I guess maybe we could bury it all in the snow to keep it cold. I remember my dad keeping beer in the snow on the porch when I was younger.
2: That should work. I guess maybe just skip lunch. Only do two meals a day until we can get out.
3: We should do the trick.
1: Alan and Lisa had their breakfast, then spent the day working on jigsaw puzzles. Reading, playing cards, and just enjoying each other's company. As the sun began to set, Lisa ventured to the kitchen.
2: Alan, can you get the steaks from my back so I can get dinner started?
3: Sure, honey. What the
1: hell? Alan found their food cache to be empty, a barren hole in the snow without a hint of food. There was a set of footprints in the snow that went from the edge of the woods to the hole and back again. They looked human, but slightly longer and thinner. Alan could make out the impressions of toe prints as well. The noise in the woods caught his attention, the sound of a stick snapping, and an uneasiness came over him. Alan slowly began backing toward the cabin, watching the tree line intently in the growing darkness. He reached the pile of firewood, his fingers coming to rest on something long and slender. The axe. He grabbed the handle, and still watching the tree line,
3: slipped back into the cabin. Alan? The food is gone. What? The food. It's gone. All of it.
2: Why do you have an axe?
3: There's something out in the woods. Probably a deer or something. But I brought this inside just in case.
2: Well, what are we going to do about dinner?
3: I don't know, babe. We have some trail mix still. Maybe tomorrow I can go out there and hunt something.
2: Alan, you haven't been hunting since high school. You don't even own a gun. How are you going to hunt anything?
3: I don't know. Maybe I can rig up some snares or traps or something. I won't let us starve.
2: We should have waited until next week. I knew coming up here with a storm was a bad idea.
3: Oh, honey, we will be fine. Let's just sit on the couch and try to relax. Surely they'll have the roads cleared by Monday morning, and then we can try and get out of here.
2: All right, yeah,
3: maybe. The pair returned to the couch,
1: Alan sitting on one end, and Lisa curled up, head resting on his lap. Before long, Lisa began to doze off, and Alan started reading a book by candlelight. He strained to see the words in the dim cabin, and eventually gave up and drifted into sleep himself. When Alan finally awoke, the cabin had grown dark and cold, the fire in the fireplace having nearly died out. Alan slid from under Lisa, gently laying her head on a throw pillow. He stoked at the orange embers in the hearth, the coals glowing a little brighter for a moment, before dying down again, having nothing to feed on but ash. Alan had meant to bring some more firewood in earlier, but he also hadn't meant to fall asleep on the couch. He slipped on his boots and opened the back door.
2: Where are you going?
3: Just stepping out to get some more wood for the fire. Go back to sleep, babe. The hell? Alan searched
1: everywhere, but it was no use. Every piece of firewood they had stockpiled was missing. Gone without a trace. He raced back inside, starting to panic. What would they do without a fire?
2: Alan?
3: It's gone. What's gone? Firewood, it's all gone.
2: What do you mean it's gone?
3: It's just gone. There's nothing left out there. Someone has to be messing with us. Someone stole all of our firewood. What the hell is that? Who's out there? Show yourself.
2: Alan, honey. Get back inside.
3: You leave us alone. You hear me? Stay the hell away from us.
2: Alan, I'm scared. What are we going to do about the window?
3: I have a hammer and nails in the back of my truck. As long as the toolbox wasn't crushed, I should be able to get them. We'll have to nail up a blanket to cover up the hole for now. Damn it. I want to know who the hell threw a log through our window.
2: Don't go out there. Don't leave me here
3: alone. It's all going to be okay, Lisa. Here, you hold the axe. I'll be right back.
1: Lisa took the axe in her trembling hands, beginning to sob. She watched Alan through the window, his dark silhouette against the bright white snow trudging along to his totaled truck. This weekend was their chance to relax and unwind, to escape from everyday life. But it was slowly becoming a nightmare, and she felt trapped. "'cornered like a mouse by a cat. "'But if she were the mouse, where was the cat?' "'A frigid breeze hit her back, "'and she was suddenly reminded of the open window behind her. "'She spun in a panic, but there was nothing there. "'Still, she had an unsettling feeling, "'like someone or something was watching her. "'She gripped the axe tightly, her knuckles turning white.' She wanted to be back home in her familiar kitchen, making dinner with the television, playing in the background. Not in this dark, cold, godforsaken cabin on the edge of nowhere, with no way out. (coughs) She heard Alan screaming behind her, and she spun to look out the front window again. Alan was gone, but she could just make out a shape in the snow. In the dying light, it had a red tint to it. She knew immediately what it was. Blood. Panic and hysteria overtook her, and she collapsed into the fetal position on the floor, her breath coming in sharp, ragged gasps. Her heart began to race, faster and faster, and she felt as though it might just break out of her chest. She remembered a technique her therapist had taught her, ocean breathing and she closed her eyes and covered her ears, focusing on her slow, deep breaths. After a few minutes, she stood, walking to the kitchen. She looked at the black, cast-iron skillet she had planned to use for dinner, its surface pitted and coated in a shimmering oil. She looked at the necklace Alan had bought her in its case on the counter, the sapphire at its heart reflecting the dim light of the candles. She looked to the flame of that candle as it convulsed in its hypnotic dance, casting odd shadows about the cabin. She looked to the shards of glass spread across the counter and floor, looking for all the world like small shards of ice. She looked to the curtain that blew erratically in the breeze from the broken window. She felt the cold, bitter wind from that window as it nipped at her skin. She felt the rough surface of the wooden countertop as she ran her fingers along the grain of the wood. She felt the cool, smooth metal of the axe blade as she ran her thumb along the side, toward the blade, checking the sharpness. She felt her hair as she brushed it out of her face, wet with her own tears. She heard the crackling of the fire in the fireplace, all the pops and cracks as the wood yielded to the unrelenting flame. She heard her own footsteps against the wooden floor as she paced from living room to kitchen slowly. She heard the howling of the wind outside, which carried itself through the open window with a whistle and a rustle. She smelled the pines and birch wood in the forest just outside of the cabin. She smelled a new scent on the air, one of death, rot, and decay. She grabbed a handful of trail mix, tasting the contrast between the saltiness of the peanuts and the pretzels against the sweetness of the candy and the dried fruit. She was calm now. She was centered. She was determined. She threw on her coat, grabbed a flashlight, and stepped outside. Even with the coat, the cold assaulted her, burning at her face and any exposed skin. A breeze was picking up, cutting her to her core. Lisa approached the red spot in the snow and saw that it was, indeed, blood. There was an imprint in the snow where something had been dragged blood trailing in the imprint. Beside the trail, there was what appeared to be a set of long, thin footprints. They looked almost human, but they just seemed wrong. For one, they were barefoot and more than a foot of snow. But at the end of each toe, there was what appeared to be a long, thin claw. It didn't matter. Whatever left these tracks had Alan, and she wouldn't stop until she found him. Lisa followed the trail through the woods, more than once startled by the fluttering of wings nearby or the snorting of a deer. But she wouldn't be deterred. Her husband was out here somewhere, and if there was one word people used to describe Lisa, it was tenacious. The trail she followed was difficult to see in the dense forest, but eventually it led to a cave in the side of a mountain. The mouth of the cave was tall and wide, but the darkness inside was impenetrable. Lisa strained to see, her eyes long since adjusted to the night, but she couldn't see any more than a few feet into the cave. But on the ground, just to the edge of her vision, she could make out something brown. She approached it tentatively, cautious of what lay beyond her vision, her hand falling on what felt like fabric. She grabbed it, pulling it to her. It was stained with blood on one of the arms and was soaked from the snow, but this was Alan's coat. She considered leaving it, but she knew when she found Alan he would need it, so she put it on over her own coat. She searched the pockets and was surprised to find a small flashlight. She clicked it on, and it illuminated a small ring on the ground before her. It didn't light up the entire cavern but Lisa was still thankful to be able to see anything at all. The air of the cave was still cool, though it was considerably warmer than the air outside, but a pungent, rotting odor pervaded the space. It smelled of death and decay, and Lisa had to pull her shirt up to cover her mouth and nose to breathe. Despite the large entrance, the cave actually narrowed to just a few feet wide pretty quickly. The cave was wet, and water trickled slowly down the walls, and mingled with the standing water at her feet. She tried to be quiet, but her splashing footsteps made it impossible. The cave began to widen, bones lining the edges of the floor where they had been tossed haphazardly, kicked out of the way by the thing that took Alan. They looked to Lisa's untrained eye to be mostly animal bones, but she did spot what was unmistakably a human skull amongst the others. Ahead of her, the tunnel opened up into a large cavern, and Lisa flicked off the flashlight and stood, motionless, against the wall, listening. She could just make out what sounded like labored breathing and the dripping of water, but nothing else. Hugging the wall, she inched her way into the large cavern, cautiously working her way to the source of the breathing. More bones were scattered about the room here, and Lisa stepped gingerly around them relying on her senses of touch and sound to ensure she didn't step on or kick any. Her foot touched something soft, and she heard a slight grunt in response. She turned on the flashlight and saw Alan laying on the cold, wet ground, unconscious. He was bruised and bloody, and a small pool of blood had gathered under his head and around his torso, but he was still alive. Lisa took off his coat and laid it over him and he muttered something she couldn't understand. Alan,
2: it's me. I'm going to get you out of here.
1: Alan groaned loudly, and Lisa heard a snarl coming from another tunnel some distance away. Shh!
2: We've got to be quiet now, baby. Come on. Can you get up?
1: Lisa? Lisa heard what she could only describe as a sort of bark in the distance and shut off the flashlight.
2: Wait right here, Alan. I'll be right back.
1: Alan didn't respond this time, and Lisa made her way to the other tunnel she had heard the sounds come from. She pressed her back against the wall and threw a bone across the cavern. It clanged against the wall, the sound reverberating around the room, and clattered into another pile of bones. The thing down the tunnel howled, and Lisa could hear it scrambling down the tunnel. She gripped the axe tightly, holding her breath, and waited. The footsteps stopped just short of the cavern, and she could hear it sniffling. The thing inched closer, and she felt something brush against her leg. Instinctively, Lisa swung the axe down in that direction as hard and fast as she could and felt the blade make contact. The thing shrieked, and Lisa swung again and again. She ran to Alan in the dark flicking on the flashlight to find him. He was starting to stir, and she grabbed his arm, pulling him up.
2: Alan, come on, we gotta go.
1: He was slow to rise, and she had to put his arm across her shoulders to help him up. The two of them made their way toward the exit, Alan all but dragging one of his feet through the shallow water on the floor of the cave. She could see the white snow in the first rays of dawn at the end of the tunnel, knowing they were nearly free. They emerged, gasping for fresh air, and Alan fell to his knees, inadvertently pulling Lisa down with him. Lisa's head landed hard on a rock concealed beneath the blanket of snow, and the pain took her breath away. Her vision went dark for a long moment. She lay there in the snow and cold, catching her breath, her vision slowly returning. Alan screamed, and Lisa sat up, and finally saw the creature for the first time. It looked similar to a man, but it was tall and emaciated, every bone in its body sticking out, threatening to pierce through the skin at any moment. The head, however, was bare, the muscles, tendons, and skull all exposed. The teeth long and sharp, perfect for tearing and ripping flesh. Its eyes glowed yellow, and it had antlers sticking from the top of its head like those of a deer. Its hands ended not in fingers, but in long, talon-like nails. Nails that were piercing into Alan's shoulder and lifting him off the ground. The creature bit into Alan's arm, tearing uh, away its uh, of, uh, of flesh. Lisa ran to help her husband, but with its other hand, the creature swatted her away. She flew through the air for what felt like ages and collided with a tree a branch. When she rolled to the ground, pain flared along her arm and she knew immediately it was broken. She scrambled to her feet, her broken arm dangling uselessly at her side, and saw the creature slash at Alan's stomach. Lisa watched in terror as Alan's innards spilled out, turning the white snow a dark crimson. She watched the life drain from her husband's face, unable to look away. The sound of a shotgun blast filled the woods, and the creature shrieked again, dropping Alan's limp body to the ground. Another blast rang out, and the creature ran back into the cave. A man rushed into the clearing. short and gray-haired, wearing blue coveralls. He was loading a shotgun, and when he finished, he slung it over his shoulder and grabbed Lisa by the arm.
4: Come on, we gotta get out of here. He'll be back soon, and he's gonna be pissed.
2: What? Who are you? I'll explain it in the truck, but we can't stay here. What about Alan?
4: Look, it's too late for him. I'm sorry, but we gotta go.
1: He pulled her arm, and she stood, hesitantly, following this stranger, not wanting to leave her husband behind. The man tugged at her arm again, and tears streaming down her face, Lisa left Alan behind. The man led her through the woods and back to the cabin, where a tow truck was waiting, already running. They both climbed in, and the man pulled out, heading toward town.
4: My name's Roger. Roger McCoy. (laughs)
1: Lisa
2: Wheeler.
4: sorry about what happened back there. Uh, About your friend.
2: He was my husband.
4: Oh, husband, I'm sorry.
2: What the hell was that thing?
4: Well, it was a man once. But it's been twisted by greed and by hunger. The Algonquin had a name for him. Wendigo. It's a monster that feeds on humans, and it is never satisfied. I've been hunting it for years, but every time I close in on it, it slips right through my fingers.
2: We know where it's holed up, we can go back and kill it
4: now look you're in no shape to go back and face that thing you need medical attention by the time i get you to the hospital and come back he'll be gone and finding a new nest
2: so what we just let the monster that killed my husband get away
4: (sighs) i know it isn't easy trust me i know better than most but not every fight ends in a victory sometimes you have to retreat tend to your wounds
1: and then live to fight another day. Lisa stared out the window at the world covered in a blanket of white, everything blurring together as they drove by. She had just watched her husband die, and she should feel something, but all she felt was numb. Numb to the pain, numb to the loss, numb to the grief. There was something there though, something deep down, something smoldering. Something akin to rage. She would go to the hospital. She would get her arm tended to, but more importantly, she would feed that feeling. She would stoke it, and fan it, and help it grow. She would use it to kill the monster who took her husband from her.
2: Are you going to hunt it down again?
1: Yeah, I I have to.
4: You see, a long time ago, it took someone from me, and I made a vow that I would get retribution. I can't stop until I do.
1: I want to help you. Roger looked at the broken woman beside him and saw something familiar. Determination and hatred. He felt the flame that had lived deep in him for thirty years flare again. He knew he couldn't turn her away. She was starting down a path now that wouldn't end until they killed that monster. Or it killed them first.
0: A romantic weekend getaway turned fatal for Alan, but Lisa, it seems, isn't one to soon forget, nor one to forgive. The Wendigo still roams the frigid forests out there for the time being, but for now, we must move on. Christmas was once associated with the telling of ghost stories. The tradition remains alive to this very day, thanks in part to Charles Dickens' classic yuletide tale, A Christmas Carol, about a miserly Ebenezer Scrooge and his visit from four ghostly visitors one Christmas. Even now, on a radio station out there somewhere, they're playing Andy Williams' hit song, It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year, complete with the line, there'll be scary ghost stories and tales of the glories, and so on and so forth. It seems that particular hair-raising tradition has dissipated in recent years, but here at Deep Hollows and Dark Hearts, we aim to keep this tradition alive. This is... A Christmas Poltergeist.
5: The howling winds were roaring, as a sound of peace filled the room. I listened to my dog snoring, and the only thoughts in my mind were doom. First came the rapping at the front door. Who is it? I called. Not a sound came anymore. The reading of my book had stalled. I opened the door to investigate who would bother me during such an icy, snowy day. There was not a soul to see. Where are you? What do you want? I called into the blowing, frozen air. The quiet did taunt. Where could they go on such a frigid dare? Inside, I found such a fright that my heart nearly stopped. My eyes could not believe such a sight as my wordless jaw dropped. Stacked on the table, high in a pile, stood all four chairs, perfectly assembled high, while I was unaware. Thought about leaving, my hand went for the door. But I knew the scheming leave me trapped outdoors. I prayed the Lord's prayer, then begged for his protection against this evil despair and my own reflection. You killed me. A voice called out. I stopped, nearly fainting, the thought that my mind would shut out by the justification of his slaying. Whom is this accusing?
6: My name is of no importance is my death so inducing that you flail in your arrogant portents. You killed me out of spite. Your heart is hard as stone, and your mind is full of ice, just as you will die on this fateful night."
5: Through the snow I dashed.
6: "...Run as far as your legs will go."
5: The muzzle flashed as I fired my pistol at the empty snow. A hollow laugh echoed through the waning (laughs) light, the cold growing into my soul. I had to survive. I had to fight through this frigid, icy stroll. As the light began to fade, I took one last look behind to see what fate I had made. The old man standing in the cabin light, the wound on his face white and bloody from the axe I used to chop while he napped in the study, to the floor his body dropped. There had been stories and rumors of the gold he had stashed away under the kitchen floorboards and inside the mattress of hay. Oh, stories of gold were true. Bars, jewelry, and coins with the plunder I paid a crew. Cabin built from poor loin. I hid the rest far into the hills, I thought I could make it there. I could pay for any way that I will to get us far from this cabin of despair. The snow seemed to deepen with every step. Soon I was buried to the waist. I feared I was inching closer to death's doorstep, but I had to continue without haste.
6: Trudge through the snowy
5: mire, as
6: far as your body may take you, but you will never see another flicker of fire,
5: except until
6: your hellish debut.
5: I reached the spot in another hour to find it had been looted. A thief had been so coward to rob me in such a time ill-suited. The old man laughed with <laughs> glee.
6: There is nothing better but to see you on your knees when you really have paid your debtor. Run, run now, evildoer. Run to the end of your life. Run to your eternal immure, run to the end of your strife.
5: The darkness of night was blinding, only the blinding void was in my sight, the bitter cold never biting, there seems to be little time, then I was falling, tumbling down, the rocks became my cushion, my jaw cracked and a broken crown, my mortality began to break down, I couldn't move, I couldn't budge. I was trying to prove that I could even nudge. The heat of my blood ran down my face and into my eyes. Bones split open like a grin. I had, though more time.
6: Tis justice, I would say, to see you in such a place, to see you in such a way, in no better way could I state, that you are getting your reward. Killing me in your utter greed. Split open like a gourd. This is most deserving indeed. Tis the best Christmas I could imagine. The only wish my restless soul wanted. To see your end in this fashion. You will soon meet the end of your days. Now I bid you farewell. As the angels call me home. And you will burn in hell. Good luck in your volcanic catacomb.
5: I watched the wind blow, the snow blanketing my body. The only thing left to feel was cold as the heat began burning my soul.
3: We've
0: certainly enjoyed our time together, but that's going to do it for us this time on Deep Hollows and Dark Hearts. We want to thank you again for joining us, and we want to thank our good friend Brandon Wills for his poem, The Christmas Poltergeist. We'd also like to take a minute to shout out Caleb Luther. Caleb is responsible for our outro music, but he also wrote and recorded the song Christmas After All, a song that was featured in tonight's story, Blood in the Snow. Caleb just released a Christmas album, titled Yuletide Days. We'll be providing a link to the album in the show notes today. Go check it out. Caleb is a good friend of ours and a very talented artist. Now I know we usually give plugs at the end, but also check out Caleb's band Meet Me in the Matinee, and of course the band Odie and I, who wrote and performed our theme music. Odie and I have an album out titled A Little Something on the Side and it is a phenomenal album, start to finish. So if you dig our theme song, give them a shot. I guarantee you won't be disappointed. Well, we're going to be taking a little break for the holidays here, but we'll be back with more Tales on Monday, January 9th, 2023. If you have the means and would like to financially support the show, you can do so at anchor.fm slash support. Of course, we understand not everyone is able to do so, especially during this time of year. So instead, if you could give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and tell everyone you know about the show, it'll help us out more than you'd think. If you'd like to stay up to date on the latest news out of the holler, be sure to follow us on both Facebook and Twitter. If you have any questions, comments, or you'd like to submit either a story or an audition for our consideration, you can email us at deephollowspod at gmail.com. Between what lurks in these hollows and what festers in the hearts of men. It's a dangerous world out there. So stay safe until we meet again. This has been a production of Darkest to Horizon Media. Blood in the Snow was written by John Adkins, narrated by Travis Ingram, featuring the vocal talents of Deanna Summers as Lisa, Trevor Boyard as Alan, and John Adkins as Roger. A Christmas Poltergeist was written and performed by Brandon Wills, featuring John Adkins as the Poltergeist. Our theme song is by Odie and I. You can check them out on Spotify, Bandcamp, and SoundCloud. Our outro music is by Caleb Luther. You can find more of his music, along with his band Meet Me in the Matinee, on Spotify, Bandcamp, and SoundCloud as well. Our artwork is by Nate Tatum. You can find more of his work at Rainbow Bear Store on both Facebook and Instagram. I've been your host, John Atkins.